Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life for Abena podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. turn it on. I did that all the time when I was here. So there you go. So some things never, ever change. It is awesome to be here. Uh, We are so excited. We've been looking forward to this day for a long time. And to be honest with you, you know, our plans, hopes, aspirations were to be with you a lot sooner than almost three years. But the older I get, the more I come to rest in the providence of God. Uh, and just his faithfulness. And so it was January this year. Um, Soon I actually attended here for the first time. We snuck in the back up into the river wing and uh, we, we just soaked ourselves in the presence of God and in the warm embrace of friends, uh, family that you have been for us uh, for so long. And after we got away and we were the last, it wasn't the courtyard dash, we were some of the last to leave. Um, as we drove out from the property, I, uh, Sue and I turned to each other. You could not wipe the smiles off our face. And we said to each other, that wasn't just good, that was better. <laughs> that was better. That God has been faithful to us. He's been faithful to new life. That God was doing, he was fulfilling his promise, the prophetic word he spoke over our church leading into that season. We didn't understand it then. We understand it more now that he was going to do a new thing. A new thing. And he has. And he is. And he will continue to do a new thing. We've missed you. We've rejoiced over you. We've lurked on your social media. And we've seen how God has done great things. So when uh, those first baptisms after New Life Cooley was launched happened down at the beach that first Easter, I wept with joy. And, you know, we've had moments since where we've tapped in, you know, during lockdown down in Sydney into services online and, and we've seen people raised up and, and commissioned into their giftedness and we've rejoiced. Uh, we rejoiced uh, just a couple of months ago when we heard that you're going to have a grandbaby, uh, New Life Morton, and, and we think that's awesome. Isn't that fantastic? Um, that you are one family made up of many churches and that God is going to continue to bless and to multiply as you submit and as you surrender to Him. We've rejoiced in and, and we are so grateful for the incredible godly leadership you have here. Uh, in Mike and Sarah, uh, who uh, are just exactly the right people to lead in your board, in your direct, in your elders, in your staff. Uh, I hope you know how blessed you are, how incredibly blessed you are in this place. Uh, And so it's just a great joy for us to be with you uh, this weekend. And it's a great joy to be uh, stepping into this series. You know, I listened um, to Pastor Anna's message last week, fantastic, and Pastor Scott's the week before. And I was driving into the city, actually. I was listening to Pastor Scott's message. And um, at the start, if you were here, he introduced himself by introducing um, himself to you by telling a bit of his story. And I'm driving from a breakfast meeting into the city, into the heart of Sydney, and I'm blubbering like a baby because I remember those days. And I see again the faithfulness of God that he raises up and equips and sends out women and men to be his missionaries into the world. Um, so the text that Mike, Mike has given me today, uh, when he told me, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. 
You've got to be kidding me because other than Romans 8, probably the text that I love to come back to most over the 15 years that Sue and I were here, 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 9, or 4 to 10. But before we jump into that, we, just to remind you, we're, 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 as we journey through 1 Peter, we're, we're exploring this question, where in this world where there is trouble can I find hope? Hope in the midst of, of suffering. And, and so today we're exploring this theme that dives deep into the mystery, the wonder, the beauty, the glory, the power of the local church, the people of God. So as we come to the text, let's, let's, let's surrender and submit ourselves to God, that God would speak to us through his word. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for just this privilege we have of sitting under your word. Your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces heart and soul in our very being. And so God, we pray that your word would speak powerfully to us now. And Lord, that we would both hear, receive and respond to a word in season for us. For our sake and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, Amen. Amen. In the 6th and 7th centuries AD, um, after years of occupation, you know, first uh, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans, centuries of occupation. There was a Jewish revolt. There'd been Jewish revolts before, but this one was different. It was like the whole population was in uprising. And uh, the Roman occupiers responded brutally. The emperor, Roman Caesar, sent one of his best generals, who would later himself become an emperor, Titus, to Palestine and he ordered him to basically crush this uprising, this Jewish rebellion. And it culminated in the siege of Jerusalem, you know, the heart of the Jewish religion, the heart of the Israelite nation. And so Titus's armies, they surrounded Jerusalem. They laid siege to it, which was a, you know, a technique of war in those days and has been since, of course, as well. And it was brutal. They occupied it. It started around the time of Passover. So there were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, people who didn't normally live in Jerusalem that were inside its walls. And they were effectively trapped. Even if they wanted to escape, they could not escape. The first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us the story and it's a bloody, awful story. Apocalyptic. It's a holocaust. Eventually, after some period of time, famine breaks out, disease breaks out. In fact, Josephus records there are multiple acts of cannibalism, such as the desperation. And Titus eventually overruns the city at its weakest point, kills its inhabitants. And those he doesn't kill, he carries off into captivity to Rome where he has a triumphal march. And there's, a, there's an arch that memorialises this moment, Titus's arch in in Rome to this day. And 40,000 or so slaves were taken back and they participated in this triumphal march. But a million people back in Jerusalem, up to a million people were slaughtered. Men, women and children. And uh, Caesar said, that's not enough. You need to send a message. And so he orders Titus to destroy the temple. The temple is the one of the ancient wonders of this world, this, this architectural marvel, beautiful. And he says, do not leave one stone on top of the other. 
And so they burn it to the ground. And, and after burning it to the ground, uh, Titus' soldiers literally push off or they lever off every stone on every wall that they can find. We have a remnant left today. But even when you go to Jerusalem today, you can see stones littering the ground that were pushed 2,000 years ago from that time. Devastation, absolute devastation. And it fulfilled Jesus' prophecy, you know, as he prepared for his arrest and crucifixion, when he looked to the temple, this, this amazing marvel, and he said to his disciples, there will come a day not very long away where not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And so this temple, quarried from local limestone in the surrounding hills, is destroyed, utterly and completely destroyed. But here is the news for us today. A new temple has taken its place. A temple not made of quarried limestone, a temple not made of inanimate stone, but a temple animated by the Holy Spirit and constructed with living stones. People like you and me. And so Peter writes about this new temple six or so years before these events take place. He's writing to a group of people, some of whom were, uh, are Jewish Christians, so they, they, they may well have gone to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, as was the, the, the custom. So they would have known and would have had in their mind uh, the beauty and the wonder of the physical temple in Jerusalem. But, but Peter's not talking about that. He's writing to them now as a group of a small collection of churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who are persecuted and suffering, who've been ridiculed, marginalised, who've been attacked, whose very life is under threat. And he reminds them that in and through Christ, their cornerstone, God has constructed a new, living, eternal temple. And it's that temple we look at this morning. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. If you want to open up your app, you can follow along with me or you can follow along on the screen. So Peter says, As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. 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 My friends, we live in a world marked and scarred with suffering and pain, where bad things still happen to good people, where the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, where our world can crumble in a moment, 
with a betrayal of a loved one or a phone call confirming a diagnosis that upends our world and our future or the accumulation of little disappointments that comes to a moment, a tipping point moment where we're crushed with despair. We live in a world that's marked and scarred with pain and with suffering. And we should not be surprised. Jesus said to his disciples, he says to us, in this broken and fallen world, in this sin-stained world, you will have trouble. But do not fear. Because I have overcome the world, he goes on to say. So where in this trouble-strewn world do we find hope? Where when we suffer or we experience pain that threatens to overwhelm us, do we discover hope? Where can we find an anchor for our soul when the winds and the waves of pain and suffering threaten to overwhelm us? From this text, from Peter's words, these ancient words, the Word of God, can I suggest to you we find hope in the midst of suffering in our identity, our identity in Christ, with our tribe, and through our purpose. We're going to look at each of those in turn. The first is this, in our identity. Now, the beating heart of this passage is verse 9, where, where, where Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's the beating heart of this. On Friday night, we were out with friends at a local restaurant and uh, we did something we don't normally do because when you get to my age, it's dangerous. We ordered dessert. And um, we suffered, I suffered from dessert envy because Sue and I, and we're also at the age where when you order dessert, you order dessert to share with your partner because you can't be safe with just one dessert each. So we ordered the brownies and they were fantastic, but our friends ordered, and I've not seen one of these before, a layered cake. And um, such was the description of this layered cake. It was, it was a special for that day. Such was the description. We all thought it was more than one dish because it just went on and on and on describing each one of the layers. And so they, they took a risk. They ordered the layered cake. And when it came out, I was thinking, you ever had this experience? I wish I ordered that. <laughs> I wish I ordered that because every layer was better than the next. It was spectacular. It looked great. And I'm sure it tasted great. Not that they shared any of it with me. <laughs> Here in this text, Peter lays it on thick. Layer upon layer of these radical claims. Remember who he's writing to. This marginalised, discredited, persecuted minority. He's saying, the world may say this, but God says this. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And the phrases he uses are not accidental, they're deliberate, they're drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures from the Old Testament. What Peter is saying is what God is doing in you is a continuation of, and fulfilment of what God has been doing for centuries through Israel. You are blessed to be a blessing. Let's look at the first phrase. You are a chosen people. Now, I love sport, uh, but... Uh, I love watching it. I'm not very great at it. I'm not blessed with great eye-hand coordination. This is something that Michael and I share together. <laughs> as I'm sure you've heard him talk about before. And I can confirm as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember the terror uh, of lunchtime in primary school playgrounds. 
when captains would be picked for a footy team or for a cricket team. And then they would go through the list of, uh, of, of people gathered there and they'd pick their teams. And I was mortified when often I'd be one, if not the last person picked. And the sense of rejection was visceral. The sense of, uh, you know, I'm not good enough was real in my primary school years. Now, that's a, a silly, in many ways, inconsequential example. For Peter's audience, their experience of rejection was real. If they were Jewish Christians, they'd been thrown out of the synagogue. If they weren't Roman citizens, you know, they didn't have much protection within the legal structures of the day. As you've heard from Scott and from Anna, this is the time of Emperor Nero, and he was not a friend of the church at all. People were dying for their faith. Their pain, their suffering, their rejection, their marginalisation was real. And so Peter writes to them and said, despite your circumstances, remember this, you're a chosen people. You're a chosen people. God has adopted you into his eternal family. Now, in less than a month, Sue and I are going to become grandparents to a little baby girl. We're very, very, very excited about that. And um, Sue's really excited and so am I. I mean, recently I was in an outlet store and I just went bananas <laughs> buying baby clothes. Who knew that was that much fun? It was amazing. And, and, and Sue was, is going to come up. She'll be up here for five weeks, which means five weeks of chicken schnitties in the local pub for me. <laughs> but she, she's coming up and she's actually going to be present at the birth, which I didn't know was a thing these days, but apparently is, which is awesome. And she's really excited about that. But it took me back to the memory of when Emily was born and the overwhelming joy, tears of joy that flooded down my face in that moment. My friends, we don't, chose, we don't choose when we're born. We don't. Nor do we choose when we're adopted. The only other time that, that, that I think my emotions were overwhelmed more or as much as when my kids were born was when, uh, when our kids were little, when they were just toddlers. We were down at Adelaide Airport and uh, my, my sister and brother-in-law were coming back from India where they were bringing home their second adopted niece, our second adopted niece, Ashi, who's now a young adult, beautiful young woman. And, and as they came through the arrival gate, as they walked in there, with all of my extended family gathered there, it was just, it was like a floodgate of tears, of joy. We knew about the journey. We, we, we knew about the, the, the twists and the turns, the challenges that Fiona and Darren had to navigate to get this point, to choose Ashi, to be in their family, to be a sister to Minica, who they'd done the same with a few years before. But that wasn't even the moment that was so overwhelming because soon after them, there came through the gate another family. They'd also gone to India to adopt, but they'd come back with three sisters, three sisters. And as they walked through the gate, those of us, well, I didn't know them, they were a family from Crystal Brook in the mid-north of, 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 of South Australia. When they came through the gate, no one had a dry eye because we saw the power of love that chooses to adopt. My friends, God chose you. 
He chose to adopt you into his eternal family. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. None. In Christ you were chosen, as Anna reminded us, at great cost. At great cost. Before you were born, before the universe was even breathed into existence, God chose to adopt us into his eternal family. He chose to smile over you forever as his precious daughter or son. He chose to lavish you with monsoonal intensity with his love. Here's what blows my mind. I was on God's mind before I even had a mind. Does that blow you away? Before I had consciousness, before I was conceived, the scriptures tell us again and again and again, we were loved. And in that love, we were chosen. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says this, He chose us in him, that is Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. But that's just the first layer of this cake. The second layer is this, we are a royal priesthood, that is God has elevated and exalted us with the privilege of serving him in his world, of participating in his mission in the world. But not only that, we are a holy nation, we're being blessed to be a blessing, that we're called not to be reservoirs that store up the grace and mercy that floods into our lives, but rivers that flow into, flow into the world that's parched and desperate for good news. Not only that, we are God's special possession. We are the apple of his eye. Our names are tattooed on the palm of his hand. His eye is ever on us. His heart is ever for us. He will never, ever, ever let us go. His grip is tender and firm. Gentle and strong. Go, go, go. <laughs> what is that? It's um, the, sorry? William Tell. William Tell, but, but what's the TV show? Lone Ranger, thank you very much. Go Toto, thank you very much. <laughs> Peter's reminding his audience, he's reminding you and me 2,000 years later because this is God's living word. That with Christ as our living cornerstone, despite what the world might say, despite what our circumstances might shout, we have unassailable, unbreakable, unshakable identity in Christ. We are chosen. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. So where do I find hope in the midst of suffering? I find it in my identity. I also find it with my tribe. Wesley Mission is this crazy organisation, just to give you some perspective. So in my role, I look after community services, which involves around 60 different programs around New South Wales and the nation, um, 120 locations and more than 2,000 staff. That's the community services. And then we have nine congregations and very multicultural. So uh, this Sunday morning, there'll be congregations meeting in, in Bahasa, in Mandarin, in Samoan, and in English. Of our congregations, about 90% uh, of our people, about 10% of our people would have an Anglo background. So very multicultural, very Sydney. It's a crazy diverse family. In fact, you could call it one big, happy, sometimes dysfunctional family in many respects. It's an amazing 
place to be, an amazing place to serve. And every week I, I get to preach in one of our congregations. We have a home congregation. I preach there regularly, but I move around a little bit. And one of the congregations that we spend a fair bit of time in is our smallest congregation at City Heart, but it's one of our favourites, if you can have a favourite child. Um, City Heart meets at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. There's no more than 40 or 50 people. We meet around tables. There's always food. Always. Always. <laughs> we, we, we sit under the scriptures. We sing together. We pray together. We talk. It's got all the elements you'd expect. In church last week, we celebrated communion. But what makes City Heart special is who's sitting around the tables. You've got people who are homeless, who literally come from the streets to come to church. You have people who have been homeless. You've got people who are struggling with addiction. You've got people who are tech entrepreneurs from the North Shore. Business people, retired pharmacists and others. You know, I sit there and I think, where else but the church? Where else but the church could you get a tribe this diverse that works like it does? Because they love each other fiercely. They love each other fiercely. I, we heard last week that Maggie is in her 70s. She's been coming to Wesley for 18 years. She's a single mum who lives in social housing in the eastern suburbs. She, she is a single mum. Her child is obviously now an adult. But life's always been a bit of a struggle particularly financially, for Maggie. And she'd had a fall that week and it was so badly bruised she couldn't get to church. And so we prayed for her. And I reached out to her that week. Maggie loves getting emails. She loves printing out emails, particularly from superintendent ministers. So I knew that was her love language. <laughs> and so I emailed her and we went to and fro. And in, in our toing and froing, she said, Wesley Mission has been my family for 18 years. She knew the power of her tribe. Then there's Raf. Raf is uh, a guy who, uh, for whom life was really tough. Mental health crisis led him to a long period of homelessness. And he ended up at Edward Eager Centre, our crisis accommodation centre in Surrey Hills. And there he got the support he needed to get back on his feet. The wraparound service, the mental health services he needed. But he was also introduced to Jesus. He met Jesus and that transformed him. He was baptised. He comes to City Heart. And, and this year we, we have an Easter celebration in Martin Place, right in the heart of the city. We put on a Good Friday celebration presenting the gospel. Uh, thousands of people come, come to that. Tens of thousands watch online. All the media are there. It's a big thing. And Raph played Jesus this year. And Raf comes to City Heart, but I have to tell you, he's pretty eclectic in his church attendance. He's there every week, but he goes to every single church service on Sunday and through the week he can go to. And I said, one of my colleagues asked him why. He said, Rick, it's a smorgasbord and I just want to line up for the feast. Because <laughs> he's found his tribe. He's find, found where a community of hope that can speak life into him. Where do we find hope in the midst of suffering? We find it in our and with our tribe. It's really interesting. Peter, when he writes, he, he doesn't use individualistic language. He uses collective language and grammar. And so it's not you are a chosen person, you are a chosen people. 
It's not you are a royal priest, but a priesthood. It's not a holy person, but nation. It's not a person belonging to God, but people belonging to God. My friends, I'm here to tell you this morning, and some of you know this so powerfully, right now even, that hope is found with community, not in our own superhuman strength. It's found in the beauty, the wonder, the glory, the frailty and the fallibility, the mystery that is the local church. It's a community of healing, a community of grace, a community of hope. We are relational beings created by a relational God. We're created by relationship for relationship. We were never designed nor equipped to navigate the winds and the waves, the twists and the turns, the disappointments and despairs of this life alone. Where do we find hope in the midst of suffering? We find it in our identity and we find it with our tribe. And last, we find it through our purpose. Peter continues in verse 9. He, he, he articulates, well, you've been formed as this chosen people, this royal priesthood, this God's special possession, not for your own sake, but for his sake. You have a purpose. The church is a purpose-formed and purpose-driven community. And so we read, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you be comfortable on Sundays and through the week. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How do we do that? We glorify God as we've been doing this morning in our worship, in our sung praise. We glorify God as we declare the goodness and greatness of God in word and in deed. In a world obsessed with self-actualization, the church humbly self-surrenders. We exist for God's glory and for the sake of the world. That's why we exist. One of the things that is telling for me is when you read the story of the early church, the first experience of persecutions recorded in the early chapters of Acts is after Peter and John uh, go to the temple one day to pray. They encounter a man who's been uh, lame since birth. He asks for money. Instead, they heal him. Uh, He runs astounded into the temple, praising God. People see it. Uh, Revival breaks out as Peter and John who refuse to back away from the opportunity but step in boldly to the opportunity to preach the gospel, to explain what it is this sign is pointing towards. And hundreds, thousands of people come to faith. And the religious leaders who observe all of this are worried. They don't know what's going on. And so they arrest Peter and John. They take them away. They imprison them overnight. They question them the next day. They interrogate them. This is a you know, desperate situation for them. But in the end, on this occasion at least anyway, Peter and John are released. They're warned not to talk publicly about Jesus anymore or else. Peter and John then leave their interrogation and they immediately go back to their tribe, to the church. And at this point in time, the temptation in 21st century Australia in the church, this is what could happen. We would have a crisis meeting We'd, we'd, we'd contact the insurers. There's been an incident at the temple. We'd review our risk management framework. We'd think of all the reasons why we need to avoid the temple precinct. It's a bit dangerous. They don't do any of that. They have a prayer meeting. They have a prayer meeting. Now, 
It's not that they have a prayer meeting that's astounding. It's what they pray. Here's what I would have been tempted to pray. Lord, protect your people. Lord, keep your people safe. They don't pray for that, not once. If you read this, they don't pray for any of that. Here's what they pray for. God, make your people all the more bold. We read this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, what they did was this. They consecrated themselves because they knew tomorrow the Lord was going to do amazing things amongst them. And God did. The Spirit of God falls on them with such power. It's a second Pentecost. The earth shakes and they're driven out into the streets, into the roads, into their cities and they transform their world because they knew the power of their purpose. They had unassailable hope in their identity in Christ, in the power of their tribe and through their purpose. Wesley Mission, we, we are this crazy organisation that we trace our history back to 1812. But in our current form, <coughs> we, uh, as a parish mission, we, we started in 1884. And the first person that served in my role, and I'm number 10 since 1884, so there's not been many of us. In 1884, it was a Methodist minister called W.G. Taylor. Quite a remarkable man as I've got to know our history. And when he was called to Wesley Mission, it was called the Central Methodist Mission at that point, when he was called there, it was an embarrassment. It was, an, it was a building empty of people in York Street in Sydney, 50 people. And the Methodist Conference wanted to close it down, sell it and, and build churches in the outer suburbs of Redfern and these sorts of places. If you know Sydney, you know that's not outer anymore. And it was a touch and go thing, but they didn't do it. And they, they will give him a few years. And Taylor was this remarkable leader. He, he was a gifted evangelist. He would go and preach every Sunday, every weekend out in front of Sydney Town Hall. And, and people would come back to the church that night where he'd preach again. And hundreds, more than 700 people in those first, that first year came to faith in Jesus. He also started new ministries, uh, meeting the needs of the epidemic number of homeless people in Sydney at that time, down the Rocks and Darlinghurst and other places. They, we, we've started ministries for women and children that continue to this day. So word, deed. But he was also a man of deep prayer. And so he initiated these prayer gatherings, these overnight prayer gatherings, where the people of God would gather. And this was decades before Azusa Street and the Pentecostal revival, where, you know, as I read his diaries, where at three o'clock in the morning, the power of God would fall so powerfully on people, they would fall down under it. Word, deed, spirit. And within five, ten years, this congregation, this building empty of people, they had to move from it because it was now a 19th century megachurch of 5,000 every weekend. Because God was doing a new thing. Because he knew his purpose. They knew their purpose. They did not exist for themselves, but for the sake of the world and the glory of God. Where do we find hope in the midst of suffering? In our identity, with our tribe and through our purpose. Taylor articulated this ministry of word, deed and spirit. He said, this is why we exist, to proclaim a living Christ to a dying world, to continue the work of Jesus Christ in word and deed. You know, one of my favourite memories here at New Life 
wasn't when we opened this building when we broke every fire code in the book. But it was a few weeks before that. We'd been worshipping over in the hall while this whole site was under construction. And a few weeks before we moved in here, at the end of each of our services over in the hall, we came over here. There was no carpet on the ground. Most things had been finished, but tech still had to be done and carpet still had to be laid. But at the end of each of the services, part of our services, as people came in, our kids from Kids Life and our youth and families and individuals and couples, we gave them each a marker and we invited them to pray and then to get on their knees and to write names, names on the floor. Names of those they longed to see come to know Jesus. It was around that time that the phrase, more people like, more like Jesus emerged. As we moved into this building, which could have become an obsession, we recognised this building is there for a purpose. That is to see people come to know Jesus as Saviour and Lord and to grow in Him. More people, more like Jesus. And I'll never forget... It was a holy moment. And so when I walk in here, there's nothing magical about this building. You know the limitations of this building. There's nothing holy about this building. But when I walk into this building, when I walk on this carpet, I know I'm walking on holy ground. I'm walking on holy ground. Because under this carpet are the names of people whom God loves, who He's passionate about. People are our purpose because people are God's passion. There is passion. How do we find hope in the midst of suffering in our identity with our tribe and through our purpose? As I finish, famous last words for a preacher. As I finish, September, sorry, October 24, Sunday 2020 was our last service, last time with you. As, as your lead minister, and it was a day filled with joy, tears of sorrow and grief, but also wonderful joy. And the next morning, literally the next morning, Sue and I, all of our stuff had been moved, or was being moved down to Sydney. We had a hire car laden with the stuff we needed to take at the last minute. Our dogs splash on the back seat. We drove from Rabina to Roseville on that Monday. Our phone's pinging with hundreds and hundreds of messages. Our heart's overflowing with joy, but also tender with grief. And from Rabina to Roseville, we wept. We just cried. But we had a sense of anticipation of this new thing God was going to do here and with us there. And God has fulfilled all of that. And we got there and we started that new adventure, but then we tipped into 2021. And without going into the details... Um, the first six months of 2021, without any risk of exaggeration, were hellish. The worst six months of our lives. Nights of uh, sleeplessness, uh, terrible bouts of despair, sense of hopelessness at times, acute loneliness because we'd been ripped from our community. There was stuff we couldn't say or share except with a very trusted few. And in that season, um, you know, we doubted, God, have we got it wrong? Did we get it wrong? This deep anxiety, this anguished prayer, profound loneliness. We wondered, God, have you abandoned us? Have we made a terrible mistake? Well, these words of C.S. Lewis spoke to me in that season. 
pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. God was shouting to us in our pain. A season that did pass, can I say, but a painful, awful season nonetheless. But here's what we learned. And here's what Peter tells you, my friends. Here's the truth. Here is where you find hope in the midst of whatever you're going through. We discovered in that season that the love of God was sure. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That, that, that his love is tender and strong, gentle and fierce. That he was never going to let us go. That his eye was always on us, even when we didn't feel it. Especially then, his eye was on us. And we clung to that truth, knowing that God was clinging to us. Driven to our knees, we were driven into the arms of God. We discovered hope in our identity as a daughter and a son of God. We, we discovered, as I said, we couldn't let many people into that world at that time. But those we let in, they were lifesavers. We'd ring them at 11, 12 o'clock at night sometimes. We'd ask them to pray. They would sit with us virtually sometimes because of border closures. They'd pray with us. They'd weep with us. They'd stand with us. They'd reach out to us. We knew we were never, ever alone. We discovered hope with our tribe. And through that season, through that furn- the furnace of that season, as our call was tested, we came out the other side with rock-solid assurance that God's hand was upon us, that he had called us to Wesley, and faithful is the one who calls you, for he will also do it. We were sure, tested in that fire. So my friends, where do we discover hope? In the midst of suffering, I'm here to testify. Not just to preach, but to testify. In our identity, with our tribe, and through our purpose. Will you stand? before we finish um, just uh, have an image and, and even, even Mikey uh, spoke into this a little bit during our opening worship uh, I just have a sense that God wants to gently soak some of us with his reassuring presence simple as that uh, and the image that came to me I shared this in the first service is of you know, a raging waterfall and if you've ever been near a waterfall you don't have to be under a waterfall to get wet we were, Sue and I were travelling in Asia once and we were near you know, a, a, a waterfall fed by monsoonal rains and we were 100 metres from the drop and still we got saturated. Just the mist, the fine mist that soaked us from top to bottom. Sun pouring down through the mist. And I feel like God is wanting to soak some of us in His reassuring, strengthening presence the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you're going through, what pain you're carrying or suffering you're enduring, what disappointments or despair are overwhelming you. 
But know this, you are not alone. You are His. He loves you and wants to pour His life into you. So if that's you this morning, I just want to pray for you briefly. I'm not going to elongate this. We don't have time for that. I I just want to pray for you. Just pray that God would soak you in His presence, His reassuring presence. That you go from this place, not necessarily with your circumstances changed, but with your perspective transformed because you know you go with God. So if that's you this morning, I'm not going to ask you to come down the front or do anything else. Just put up your hand just as a sign of surrender and submission to God, not to me, but that I might pray for you. So if that's you this morning, just do that wherever you are right now. Thank you. There are others. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's just got their arms up, outstretched, palms up as a way of saying, God, I want to receive. That's you. Just, Just do that right now. Just another five seconds, 10 seconds or so, and then we'll pray. Lord Jesus, in 1 John, uh, you say that our Father has lavished His love upon us. So if your daughters and sons whose arms have been or are outstretched right now, lavish your soaking presence on them. Lord God, we pray. Soak them with your spirit. Seep into their very being, your life, your hope, your strength and your power. Hold them strong and gentle, firm and fierce, Lord God, we pray. Strengthen them. Lord, may they find hope in their identity, with their tribe and through their purpose. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Together we say, Amen. So we're going to finish by singing just these words. And we're choosing, it's a declaration. Declaration. I will build my life. I will build my life. Not on my own strength, but on Christ, my firm foundation. Let's sing together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.